Any views and opinions expressed are those of the author and or participants and do not necessarily reflect the views, policy, or position of Gastroenterology Learning Network or HMP Global, their employees and affiliates. Welcome to Gut Check, a podcast from the Gastroenterology Learning Network. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. And I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Lin Chang, Professor of Medicine in the Division of Digestive Diseases at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, and also to Dr. William Che, Section Chief and Professor of Medicine in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Now, both doctors Chang and Che are international experts in disorders of gut-brain interaction. But more pertinent to our discussion today, they have recently co-authored a joint AGA and ACG, and that means, of course, the American Gastroenterological Association and the American College of Gastroenterology guideline on the pharmacologic management of chronic constipation, published both in the American Journal of Gastroenterology and in the AGA journal as well. Drs. Chang and Che, welcome. What an absolute delight to have you both here together. Let's begin simply, why a joint AGA and ACG guideline on chronic constipation? Dr. Che? Thanks, Brian. Um, Maybe a better question is why not? You know, you think about it, the societies always do guidelines. And, you know, for actually many years, we really tried carefully to, to, orchestrate who is doing what, but in more recent years, we seem to have more and more overlap. And Lynn and I are good friends and colleagues, work together a a long time, as we have with you, actually, for many years as well. And bottom line is, we felt that a joint guideline would be much more powerful, much more impactful than a guideline by either organization alone, or even worse, two separate guidelines by each organization on the same topic. So we decided that it would make a lot of sense to join forces. And fortunately, uh, we were able to to help persuade the boards of the AGA and the ACG to, to collaborate on this first ever uh, joint AGA-ACG guideline. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this would give us uh, the two leading societies, GI societies in our country, you know, a unified voice and also would be better for patients, clinicians, membership, payers, and also that we wouldn't have conflicting views, you know, because we work together and agreeing on the recommendations. And that was, as Bill said, much more impactful and powerful. Yeah, what a wonderful collaboration. I think it also is very reassuring to clinicians that they're hearing this unified voice. So when they're thinking about patient care, so thank you for doing this. I know how much hard work this really is. So, Dr. Chang, how actually was the guideline put together? Well, I had always been thinking that the ACG and AGA should do a guideline together. I thought about that, the IBS, about the IBS treatment, because both societies did it around the same time. But with the chronic idiopathic constipation, or CIC, they were both starting it at the same time. And I was asked to be on the AGA guideline uh, for CIC, and Bill was leading the ACG effort. And so I had talked to Shanaz Sultan or Shazi, who is the chair of the AJ guideline committee and talked to Bill about why don't we do it jointly. And we agreed. So we came up with a proposal because it had never been done before. 
And we also worked with David Wan, who was the chair of the ACG Practice Parameters Committee, oversees the guideline. And we came with agreement on the process and the methodology and Bill presented to the ACG uh, Board of Trustees and I, I did that with the AGA Governing Board and we all agreed on this process. And what we decided to use, and Bill has always brought this up, is that we tried to use the strengths of both societies on the way they did guidelines. And both guidelines use the grade methodology. And so we did it together, taking the strengths of both. And we had equal membership from, from both societies. So we structured it with an executive committee the, with two members of the ACG, that's Bill and Tony Lumbo and Shazi and me on the AJ side. And then we had three subcommittees. We divided up, we all agreed on the different treatments we were going to review as a group. And then we had these uh, decide on the PICOs for the uh, for each of the, of the treatments. And then we assigned uh, committee members to the subcommittee where there was no conflict with that treatment. And we had a methodologist, a senior methodologist, uh, overseeing one methodologist per committee, came up with the certainty of evidence, looked at the, the evidence, and then we came together as an entire committee, including guideline committee members that were not involved in the evidence review committees, looked at the evidence, and then uh, decided on the, the recommendations. But if a member had a conflict of the treatment, they were not involved in that discussion of the guideline recommendation. And I think that's important to remember. And then we published it, you know, the same document in the, the Red Journal and in Gastro. Wonderful. Lots of moving parts there and really a lot of effort to make this as clean and transparent as possible, which, again, should reassure clinicians. So, Bill, there were 10 recommendations made by the panel. And let's start really simply. A conditional recommendation was made for fiber. Why was that? Well, largely because despite the fact that we all think of fiber first and we all use fiber first, there isn't, there isn't an incredibly robust um, set of data to support the use of fiber. It's not to say that it's, that the data is negative. It's only to say that for, let me give you an example is that the three types of fiber that were evaluated in the guideline were bran, inulin, and psyllium. And for, for brand, there was actually only one placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial that qualified for inclusion in, in the analysis. For inulin, there were two. And for psyllium, there was only three randomized placebo-controlled trials that evaluated psyllium for chronic constipation. You know, the best evidence was for psyllium. Uh, and, you know, the general recommendations are to always think about total fiber intake. So as opposed to just what you're supplementing, like for example, when we say that it's recommended that people consume 20 to 30 grams of fiber per day, it's important for clinicians to realize that isn't necessarily what you're trying to shoot for in terms of the amount of supplementation. It's total fiber, 20 to 30 grams of total fiber per day. So a person may be very well eating 10, 15, even 20 grams of fiber per day. You have to supplement according to the amount of fiber that they're uh, taking on a daily basis. That's why it's so important to actually work with a dietitian, for example, who can help you to determine what the appropriate level of, of uh, supplementation might be, or, or at least take a dietary history so you have some feel for that. Great. Great teaching point. So fiber, simple, cheap, safe. That said, there's just not the amount of evidence as we're going to hear later about some pharmaceutical agents. 
So Lynn, a strong recommendation was made for the use of polyethylene glycol, an osmotic laxative. What was the data to support this strong recommendation? There were three randomized clinical trials comparing polyethylene glycol osmotic laxative with placebo. And the, the certainty of evidence for complete spontaneous bowel movements, spontaneous bowel movements, and global relief was moderate. But there was a low certainty of evidence for the, the side effects that caused someone to discontinue a trial. But overall, the evidence was supportive that this uh, that PEG would improve bowel habits in patients, um, and so was given a strong recommendation. I should say that the we looked at different endpoints, like complete spontaneous bowel movement frequency, spontaneous bowel movement frequency, global relief, uh, treatment discontinuation, quality of life, but the critical outcomes were improvement in uh, CSBMs, SBMs, and treatment discontinuation. So you'll look at the at, at those particular critical outcomes a little bit more when you're making your recommendation. But in general, it's thought that polyethylene glycol is available over the counter, that it was effective in, in patients with uh, chronic idiopathic constipation. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, one, one other thing too, just to mention is PEG is one of the only agents that we use for constipation that actually has six month RCT, six month randomized controlled trial data, you know, which is I think also reassuring to to, yes. to listeners that there is, if you want to call it that, um, you know, longer term data to, to support the safety and efficacy of PEG. Bill, thank you. Very, great, great teaching point there. Um, so, Bill, shifting gears a little bit, thinking about another osmotic agent, in this case, magnesium oxide, the group gave a conditional recommendation to magnesium oxide. Why a little bit of a less enthusiastic recommendation? Yeah, you know, Brian, the, the the first thing to say about this is, which is a really important point, is this is the first constipation guideline that's ever recommended magnesium. So I, I actually, I'll take credit for this. I pushed really hard to get magnesium included amongst the different therapies, primarily because for me, magnesium oxide has been one of my go-to laxatives uh, for constipated patients for for decades. So it's valuable to just understand there is data to support magnesium oxide, but there are issues with the data. Uh, there's issues with all data, but th in particular with this, realize it's the recommendation is based upon two small studies that that ended up enrolling fewer than 50 patients in total to magnesium oxide. That's the first thing. Second thing is all the studies, the two studies that were done were conducted in Japan. So we have no studies from the United States or from, from Europe. The third thing is that the dose used in the studies was 1.5 grams per day, which for those of us who do use magnesium, that's a lot of magnesium. So given all of those caveats around the data, small data set from one country with a, re with a higher dose than we typically use, we felt like we had to qualify it a bit in terms of the recommendation. Wonderful. And maybe that will stimulate researchers here or in Europe to perform similar but larger studies. So Lynn, lactulose um, has been around a long time. It was given a conditional recommendation. I actually rarely recommend this, mostly because of the side effects of bloating. What was the panel's view? I mean, there was randomized control data looking at lactulose for chronic constipation, so definitely was worth us investigating. But there were only two trials, and one was in the Netherlands, with about 100 patients, 
was only a three-week course. So we should remember that about, you know, chronic constipation is a long-term condition. And so part of, I think it's the indirectness uh, that is rated in grade methodology. If it's, if it's a very short duration of time, you really think about how applicable it is using it for long-term. But lactose was studied in one country, Netherlands, 103 patients for three weeks with variable dose. And then there was another study with 55 patients uh, with um, one single dose, 30 milliliters for 12 weeks. I think it was 12 weeks. And so the, the, you starting with two studies are different. One study didn't show any effect on spontaneous bowel movements uh, frequency while the other one did. And there was some evidence of global relief, but overall the evidence for, for these outcomes was very low because there was a risk of bias uh, based on the methodology of randomization and blinding. Uh, so that, you know, just had a very low certainty of evidence. And that's why I was given a conditional recommendation. The other point I want to make with this guideline is that the committee did put together implementation remarks and their statements under each treatment. And that is based on the committee, the experts getting together and making recommendations they th that they thought were important for clinical practice use of each of these treatments. And it's not necessarily based on rigorous scientific data. It's our collective experience. So for lactulose, it was important to know, and I think we all know this, and this limits our use, is that it does cause bloating and gas. And the higher dose you use, you're going to have more of that. So we did make that recommendation uh, that you, know, you may not want to use it so early in the regimen because of those side effects. Because those effects, those symptoms are, patient, are what patients report anyways, even without treatment, right, with chronic constipation. Brian, can I make yeah. one, one additional comment too? Um, and one of the other implementation comments I think is important for people in clinical practice regarding lactulose, and that is that lactulose is the only laxative therapy for which there has been conducted an RCT in pregnant women. So actually, if you're looking for an evidence-based and safe treatment for pregnant women, uh, lactulose would, would be your option. Great point there because really nothing else has been studied. So we have data yeah. to support that. Yeah. So Bill, thinking about bisacodyl, this is used a lot. This stimulant laxative is used a lot to treat symptoms of occasional constipation. But you know, this wonderful guideline is on chronic constipation. What was the recommendation from the joint AGA and ACG committee? So following on the heels of, of Lynn's comments, so for, first thing to say is that for both bisacodyl and another compound that's available in other parts of the world that's structurally related, pharmacologically related is probably a better way to say it, and that is uh, sodium picosulfate. Uh, both of these have been evaluated in randomized controlled trials and found to be effective for um, constipation-related outcomes, increasing spontaneous bowel movements, increasing complete spontaneous bowel movements. Uh, improving other things like straining, stool consistency, those types of endpoints. The thing that's similar to what Lynn talked about, though, is that both of those RCTs were four-week RCTs, so relatively short duration. Um, and, you know, I mean, the reality is that I think if you were to ask 100 gastroenterologists about whether they had concerns about stimulant laxatives like bisacodyl or, or um, sodium picosulfate, you'd hear probably a substantial minority of folks with concerns about the safety of those laxative therapies when used over long periods of time. And the, here's the reality. The reality is we don't have any long-term safety data. So we don't know whether there are issues or not. Right now, there don't appear to be. 
but the in fairness we don't have long-term um, safety data by the way we don't have long-term safety data for virtually any of these treatments so i don't want to make it sound like this is only relevant to bisacodyl and sodium picol sulfate the same issue actually should be considered for all these we really have with the exception of the prescription medications where there's an fda requirement to have at least one year safety data uh, for all the otc remedies we have no long-term data no that's that's a great point bill to just again put things in perspective to make sure we're, we're not calling out one otc agent versus another and and lynn before we shift gears and start talking about some prescription medications what about Senna, another stimulant laxative? A lot of patients like it. Many providers recommend it. Is there long-term data, kind of speaking to Bill's point, supporting the use of Senna for chronic constipation? You know, the data on Senna, which is so widely used, is even less than what Bill mentioned. Uh, there's actually only one randomized control trial, a placebo-controlled trial of Senna, with only 30 patients in each arm, and it's four weeks, just like the uh, other stimulant laxatives. And that it did show benefit in spontaneous bowel movements and complete spontaneous bowel movements, but the recommendation, the certainty of evidence was rated down because of indirectness and imprecision, and imprecision meaning that there's a wider confidence interval when you look at these outcome measures. Uh, so that's why it was given a, a low certainty of evidence conditional recommendation. But, you know, this thinking about what Bill said, I don't know who is going to conduct those long-term studies of over-the-counter laxatives. So it probably won't be done, right? So that's that's the issue. You, you know, the other thing, Lynn, too, that you just have to say in fairness is that a lot of these things people have been using for not just decades, for literally centuries. You know, you think about things like Senna. You know, the, the ancient Egyptians used Senna all the time as a laxative therapy. Magnesium oxide has been used as a, a remedy in the Far East and other countries for, for many, many... so. People have been using these things for long periods of time, and you know, uh, and and it doesn't seem that there have been significant safety signals that have been reported in association with their use for many, many years. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, That's the fair. history of these agents is important to recall. So, Bill, it's a little hard to believe as we start thinking about pharmaceutical agents that the FDA gave approval to lubaprostone over 17 years ago, January 2006, and lubaprostone, this type 2 chloride channel activator, uh, is used routinely for the treatment of chron chronic constipation. What strength of recommendation was provided by the joint panel for lubaprostone? You know, lubaprostone has, like you said, been around a very, very long time. And, you know, it, it works by acting at the CLC2 channel to increase chloride secretion. And there are uh, several, actually, I think three randomized controlled trials which have evaluated lubiprostone for patients with chronic idiopathic constipation showing benefits in a lot of those key clinical endpoints that Lynn alluded to, spontaneous bowel movements, complete spontaneous bowel movements, constipation response. The guideline actually gave a conditional recommendation and a low certainty of evidence, primarily because, relatively speaking, by industry standards, the studies were small and, again, of only four weeks duration. As you know, I think as we get into this discussion, 
Lynn will talk about the data for some of the other prescription medications, which are it tends to be longer term and also use, uses uh, standardized FDA criterion, which in fairness to lubiprostone weren't necessarily available at the time these studies were done. Yeah, that's a great point, Bill. So certainly routinely used and considered very safe. And the, the guidelines were different, you know, 20 years ago when these studies were done and only four-week studies were required and now longer studies are required. And so linaclotide is a guanolate cyclase C agonist, also called a GCC agonist for most of our listeners who are here today on Apple or Spotify. And this was approved 11 years ago in 2012. It was given a strong recommendation by the panel. And what was the data supporting the strong recommendation for linaclotide? Yeah, I mean, these were well-conducted studies uh, that had used an endpoint that was accepted by regulatory agencies that we were just mentioning. But there's three 12-week randomized controlled trials. And actually, all three doses were studied in CIC. Uh, which sometimes I forget about the highest dose being studied, but really settled on the 145 microgram dose daily. And also later on, the 72 microgram dose uh, daily was studied as well. But it, it did show a, a significant benefit of an increase in complete spontaneous bowel movements per week, including responder rate and some, uh, spontaneous bowel movement frequency, improvement in stool consistency, and in global relief. So overall, the evidence was supportive that it was efficacious, linaclotide was efficacious for chronic idiopathic constipation, but the, it was, the certainty of evidence was rated down uh, because of imprecision, and, but not, not only just for the efficacy endpoints, but also for diarrhea as a, as a cause for treatment withdrawal. So it was, the overall evidence was moderate, but a strong recommendation. Wonderful. Bill, placanotide is another GCC agonist, and this is also given a strong recommendation. And it was approved by the FDA in February, excuse me, in January of 2017 uh, for CIC. Did the panel comment on choosing one GCC agonist over another? Is there direct comparison data to help clinicians? There's, of course, no, no direct comparison data. Um... And, and we actually didn't talk about this a lot. I think there are a number of practical things to think about that, you know, might help you to choose one or the other. You know, one of the things that people like about linaclotide is the dosing flexibility, you know, to have three different doses available uh, that you can titrate, if, if you will, to an individual patient's needs. On the other hand, you know, I think particularly for primary care doctors, that makes it really confusing. And so one thing that's nice about placanotide is there's one dose. There's one FDA approved dose, three milligrams. And that's, by the way, the same dose that's available for chronic idiopathic constipation and IBSC. So some people just like that, the fact that it's very simple. The other thing um, is that linaclotide, you really should dose it on an empty stomach before a meal. Um, with placanotide, uh, it, it's recommended that it doesn't matter whether you take it with or without food. And then the most common side effect for both the drugs is, is diarrhea. So it's important to just recognize that that is an issue for, for both the drugs. The diarrhea, uh, there's been a lot of debate about which drug causes more or less diarrhea. I think it, in the absence of direct comparative studies, it's really hard um, to make a judgment regarding that particular point. 
Wonderful. And I, I, I think we all know, and many of our listeners know, I think the definitions used to uh, classify diarrhea was a little bit different in the different studies. So it makes it kind of tricky to tell. So Lynn, as we wind down here, uh, prucalipride is a 5-HT4 agonist, a serotonin type 4 agonist. And this was approved in Europe several years ago before receiving FDA approval here, which occurred in 2018 for the treatment of CIC. What was the strength of the recommendation from the panel for the use of prucalipride for CIC? And kind of let us know a little bit about the data. This this agent had the most, the highest number of clinical trials. There were five randomized control trials that studied the efficacy of prucalipride compared to placebo in CIC, and mainly studying the two milligram daily dose. There was a study that also looked at the four milligram daily dose. In the United States, it's a, it's FDA approved for both one milligram and two milligrams daily, but but the studies support that it that prucalipride had significant improvement in complete spontaneous bowel movements, spontaneous bowel movements, and uh, also the responder definition. There were, there were a very small number of serious adverse events or the adverse you know, diarrhea uh, that caused patients to withdraw treatment. So there was some difficulty uh, understanding the estimates of those, of those events when you look at the trials. But overall, it was given a moderate rating for certainty of evidence and a strong recommendation. Wonderful. Lynn and Bill, this has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have learned an awful lot. Any last thoughts for our listeners? I would say that uh, we, our committee spent a lot of time on this clinical decision support tool. Because I know everybody likes algorithms. And there's not always one way to treat chronic idiopathic constipation, we definitely realized in our group of experts that we may all go down a different type of path. But in general, we did try to make a, a summary. But it, but one comment that I want to make is that we didn't evaluate dyssynergic defecation or defecatory disorders that can contribute to chronic idiopathic constipation. But if you look at the clinical decision support tool, we do bring that in to assess that after, in patients if they fail fiber or over-the-counter uh, laxatives that you should really be thinking about uh, dyssynergic defecation because the treatment's different. It would be anorectal biofeedback or uh, pelvic floor physical therapy. So I did want to bring in that comment. And then the other comment we made as a group, and, and Bill can weigh in on this, on the stimulant laxatives, we considered using it more short-term or as rescue medicine. We do have a lot of different options for more long-term use. Uh, so that's some of the discussion that we had. I know, Bill, you want to comment more? Uh, just one comment. Yeah, I'm glad you made the the comment about dysenergic defecation and evacuation disorders, which people should definitely think about in patients who don't respond to OTC or prescription medications. The only other comment is that uh, we actually had a fairly robust debate about whether to discuss or include um, natural laxatives as part of the the treatment algorithm, uh, because every while everybody agreed that thinking about fiber and natural laxatives first is what they do in real life. And since we didn't talk about natural laxatives as part of the guideline, we, did, we didn't really include it as uh, uh, an important part of the, the treatment algorithm. But I just wanted to say that there is evolving evidence to suggest that a number of agents, natural agents, possess laxative properties. So 
Um, I think everybody's aware of prunes. People are, are increasingly thinking about kiwi fruit. But there are other lots of other things too. Watermelon and mango contain lots of fructose, which for some people um, exerts a laxative effect. Papaya the same same way. And then there are other other natural substances, plants that contain stimulant laxative properties like aloe vera, uh, for example, or rhubarb. So there are lots of ways to skin the constipation cat, and there are many many options: natural options, fiber. OTC prescription medications. And so I think it's a really exciting time for patients and providers because we have so many tools at our disposal. The key is to understand what the tools are and when to use which one. Yeah, I think that's an important point to personalize the management approach. And that could be based on multiple factors, you know, what the patient's been on, what they're interested in, their insurance coverage. Uh, so there's a, and the, what their most bothersome symptoms are. So I think that is an important point. Wonderful. So for our listeners, you've been listening in to two international experts on chronic idiopathic constipation, Dr. Lin Chang at the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, and Dr. William Che, professor of medicine at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This is Gut Check, whether you're listening in on Apple or Spotify or some other platform, we're delighted to have you here today. We hope you learned a lot. I certainly did. And we're looking forward to having you tune in for another podcast in the future. Again, Bill and Lynn, thank you so very much. Thank you.